0: episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Vanessa Havard Williams, a partner at Linklater's LLP, a global law firm. Vanessa leads the firm's global environmental and climate change practice groups and co-heads the risk and resilience and crisis management teams. Vanessa, who is based in the UK, will discuss some recent regulation impacting sustainable finance in the EU. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Vanessa.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me to participate, Amelia. It's really good to be here.
0: So this ESGB will focus on sustainable finance and recent changes primarily in the EU. But before we get started, let's start with a description of your practice group, the risk and resilience practice group. So much of what we're talking about in this course has to do with both risk and resilience. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your work?
1: So Risk and Resilience is a cross-practice initiative at Linklater's which covers all forms of risk and helps clients engage with them from um, ethics and behavioural regulation through into sustainability. And as part of that, we coordinate the ESG offering of the firm, again, on a cross-practice basis. So we work Uh, with our corporate partners, we work with finance, we work in projects, and of course we also engage in capital markets and in disputes.
0: And that certainly makes sense to me because ESG is of course cross-functional and it's not a discrete set of issue areas but rather a process for overseeing risk as as we've discussed in the past. So to have this cross-functional practice group makes a lot of sense. Um, So moving on to um, an overview of the regulator and regulatory requirements impacting sustainable finance, I'm looking forward to discussing some of the recent developments with you. But before we delve into that, can you give our audience a sense of the history of this space? How did investors and asset managers um, view their fiduciary duties vis-a-vis their portfolios in the past?
1: We've been talking about fiduciary duties and sustainability factors for an awfully long time. Um, Really, since the mid-naughties, there's been a debate about whether it is appropriate to consider non-financial factors like environmental and social risk. Um, as, as an investor or as a trustee of a pension fund. And there was a long established feeling in the market that it was inappropriate, which was a misinterpretation or a broader interpretation of a particular case that arose in the 1980s in the UK. And during um, the last 10 years, there have been a series of reports by the Law Commission, which is um, a, a government-established entity that reports on areas where legal developments are necessary. So the Law Commission has been asked on several occasions whether it is possible to, uh, and whether trustees should, consider environmental and social issues. It- issues in the context of um, their investment policy and making investment decisions and in each case the law commission has said where there is um, a material risk where there's a financial impact then it's appropriate to consider environmental and social issues if you are investing with the prime aim of creating a positive social or environmental impact rather than it being woven into your um, investment strategy as you know achieving good good sustainable returns so if the aim is to produce something which is for the benefit of society that's different for that you have to have the agreement of um, your pension fund members but where it is just a normal part of risk management, then the expectation is that you should take in these non-financial factors in the same way as you consider any other risk.
0: And so in that regard, non-financial is sort of a, a misnomer and this dichotomy or clear line between financial risk and non-financial risk is um, a fiction in many cases. Would you Yes, agree it is.
1: That? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and actually, the wording is really unhelpful because it creates um, differences in in our heads that actually,
0: if you unpick it logically, don't exist. Would you say that the appetite by the regulators and um, the regulatory agencies to consider environmental and social risks more than they did, you know, decades ago has to do with the externalities? Um, that the externalities are, in fact, more tied to financial impact than they used to be? I think that is absolutely right. And
1: we have seen in Europe, really, a real rush by regulators and by policymakers um, to start bringing back in those externalities and requiring financial institutions across the board, really, to start thinking about and articulating how they manage those risks. And that has been essentially driven from a financial stability uh,
0: perspective. So now let's parse some of those changes out. Um, You described a rush uh, to having um, investors address the externalities of business on their portfolios. Can you Describe the recent changes at a high level and then we'll we'll go uh, to the impact on different constituencies next
1: At a very high level what we are seeing is An expectation That climate change in particular is factored into governance risk management um, and strategy including through scenario analysis. So essentially there's an expectation that is really affecting initially the financial services sector, but increasingly listed corporates that they will align and report in coming years uh, in accordance with the TCFD standard. And in the UK, we've seen announcements that that will be required in the next two years. Um, And we've also seen those requirements wrapped into supervisory statements in the UK by by the PRA that apply to uh, large banks and insurers. And then separately, you're seeing much the same approach occurring in... Uh, the EU in some of the uh, regulation
0: that's more focused on funds and on asset managers. Okay, so let's break those down into uh, different constituencies, starting with asset managers. Can you describe the specific changes that are impacting or uh, will impact in the near future asset managers in particular? So for asset managers, the
1: the regime is a suite of three regulations um, that have been passed and and one we're still waiting to get uh, totally finalised over the past uh, 12 months. And, And the first obligations bite in March next year, March 2021. They apply in relation to... ESG generally <clears throat> as regards disclosure requirements so the three three regulations are a disclosure regulation a benchmarks regulation and a taxonomy regulation and I, I'll skip the benchmarks regulation because I think the one that's most important for everybody is the disclosure regulation and the disclosure regulation requires um, financial market participants within the EU to have on their website an articulation of their approach to managing uh, sustainability in their investment decision-making, with a particular focus not just on positives, which is where we've seen ESG historically, but also how you manage adverse sustainability impacts. So there's that general obligation, which is at, a, at an entity level. Linked into that, there is also an obligation to um, say publicly, again on the website, to what extent your remuneration policy aligns with that approach to sustainability, your sustainability policy. And then for large asset managers, And there is a complicated and not very clear uh, definition. Um, But for large asset managers, there's also a requirement to publish um, principal adverse sustainability impacts uh, and very specific granular information about those sustainability impacts across the portfolio. So that will be scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. It'll be factors going to biodiversity. It'll be social factors. And there are, I think, around 12 mandatory indicators. And then there are another uh, cohort, two cohorts of indicators from which you have to choose one in each category. So you can see that from a position where you weren't really having to disclose anything on a mandatory basis, and so your default was probably to write broadly positive things, you're now having to report on downside risk in a way that you probably never had to before. So I'll pause there before we go on to the taxonomy.
0: That's, that's really fascinating for a number of reasons. So I'd like to delve into a few things. One, just the mechanics of the reporting. So uh, there are different um, things that asset managers have to report to that relate to downside risk with a level of specificity. Is there a reporting standard or framework that's recommended? We've
1: just had put out to consultation what the indicators are and what what those adverse indicator reports would look like and obviously that's only in relation to large asset managers so it's not going to pick up lots of them um, but it will pick up some and that is the entity level requirement. Now then if you have um, products that are marketed as having environmental or social characteristics or if you have which is a different category products that are marketed as sustainable they have their own specific special product reporting requirements and those also need to be thought through in terms of the marketing that the asset managers undertake so what we've what we're looking at is um, fund managers and asset managers having to take This whole new set of risks and really develop a compliance system to enable themselves to be able to make the disclosures that will be required at an entity level and then at a product level and in in that context there may also be periodic annual reporting requirements as well. So you can see that we're moving into quite a complicated territory and it's going to take people a while to get used to it and obviously they will also have to suck the data out of the investees for whom this
0: will also be a bit of a shock i think very interesting and with respect to how they're reporting um do you think that the investors and investees are going to use the SASB standards or the GRI standards, or is the regulation sort of agnostic with respect to that?
1: So, it's going to be different depending on your size, I think. So you remember I said there was this extra requirement for if you were a big asset manager. Well, in those circumstances, the the metrics that you have to report to are effectively prescribed and are different from SASB, similar but different because we have done a comparison. If you're smaller then that adverse impact reporting obligation is a comply or explain obligation. So it feels like for those entities you've got a bit more time you could say well actually we're doing this under SASB or we are um, we're taking time to learn how to engage with this more effectively. And so we won't be reporting quickly.
0: So you're advising many of these investors and large asset managers. Can you give us, of course, without naming names, a sense of, uh, their mood with respect to these new obligations and particularly because, uh, this is coming amidst a global pandemic.
1: So, I think when we first looked at the disclosure regulation before we had the the secondary level technical guidance, people understood what the requirements were and they hadn't, you know, there was still plenty of time to engage. This was pre COVID. And so people were starting to think about it. And then COVID happened and that obviously put a bit of a pause on things. And then after that, we got the technical guidance with the principal adverse uh, sustainability impacts, which is the thing that looks quite scary, which is for for the large entities. And when did did that guidance come out? End of April. And it's out to consultation, but because everybody has to be in a position to comply by, you know, somewhere spring next year, and because we now have a very green set of European institutions, the expectation is while it may change at the edges it probably isn't going to change fundamentally so i think that was a bit that that additional technical guidance was a bit of a shock and creates when taken with some of the other eu developments creates a quite significant jump in terms of expectations we should probably also talk a little bit about the taxonomy So the taxonomy is the other main pillar in relation to sustainable finance. And that defines the economic activities that are um, likely to be still um, acceptable in a net zero world. So if you think of green as a spectrum, um, these are the very dark green ones. And if you think of of an investment pyramid, at the base of the pyramid, you've probably got normal investments. In the middle, you've probably got investments that have previously been marketed as having environmental or social characteristics. And at the tippity top of the pyramid, you've got taxonomy-compliant investment products. And and those are picking up um, investments in renewable power for example. The way that the taxonomy is defined is both by reference to climate mitigation and climate adaptation activities and there's very detailed technical guidance on that and then there will be other environmental characteristics for which there are similar technical guidance provided over time because this covers five different environmental criteria, climate, water, biodiversity, circular economy, and pollution prevention and control. Um, Now the idea is that you you qualify in your your climate adaptation or climate mitigation limb, but then you have to show no significant harm to the other environmental criteria. And there is also a a social safeguards element, which requires that that the activity is um, compliant with ILO standards, so International Labour Organization standards, and the UN Guiding Principles on uh, Business and Human Rights. So getting to the taxonomy level is not just about the technical climate Um, favorable activity. It's also about not doing any other harm at a significant level.
0: So with respect to these changes, we've talked a little bit uh, about the impact on the asset managers, and I want to make sure that um, we also benefit from, uh, you know, the breadth of your experience in advising banks and funds and also corporates. Um, What is the impact on banks and funds if you could just touch upon that so so funds who have
1: a fund manager who is an eu regulated entity will be caught by the same regime as asset managers except that they'll probably be small so they won't have the 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 adverse sustainability impacts uh obligation probably um banks uh are are, um, governed under different requirements and and what we're seeing is predominantly those requirements at the moment applying through the regulatory authorities. So in the UK through the PRA supervisory um, statement that came out in April 2019 and through the concept of climate stress testing which The Bank of England will look at, it was going to look at it next year. In practice, it will move back a year. Um, And you're also seeing similar activity starting. um, The the Banque de France is uh, at broadly the same place as the Bank of England. Um, The German central bank and the Dutch central bank are also active. And there's a network of central banks who are developing guidance on... Uh, financial stability and the approach they will take to regulating banks in in their jurisdictions. Now there are also developments happening at an EU level, but they're a little bit 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 further behind. So there is uh, that there are capital requirements, um, which will w- where the directive envisages. Actually, it's a regulation, capital requirements regulation, where there is. Um, A review envisaged in, I think, 2025 as to whether there should be uh, additional requirements for um, exposure to brown assets as opposed to green assets. It's very broadly couched, but conceptually there's a marker down to have a think about that. And in Brussels, there has been quite a lot of discussion about if you have a green taxonomy, should you also have a brown taxonomy? Should you have uh, green reliefs uh, and brown penalties, but it's all very nascent at the moment the the ECB has just put out for consultation guidelines, um, and they're really just interpretative um, guidelines on considering these factors of financial stability for banks within the eu so there's there's activity, but it's sort of a softer form of regulation at the moment than what we're seeing for
0: asset managers in future years. And just so it's clear for our audience, um, can you describe what uh, brown assets are?
1: So brown assets are um, assets
0: with uh, a high carbon footprint. Mm Okay, so now um, we touched upon this a little bit as well, the impact on the corporates and you said because the there's going to be so much pressure uh, for the asset managers to report with a level of specificity that's quite high, <clears throat> that is going to sort of trickle down to their demand for the corporates to report more. Um, can you say a bit more about that and then on other impact that you envision on corporates? Sure. Um... So,
1: what has been happening at a policy level is that European policymakers are effectively using the financial markets as a lever to effect change in the wider economy. and so the the obligations hit the financial sectors first and indirectly impact the corporates. And over time, you can see that there is the potential for there to be an impact in terms of access to capital and cost of capital. Depending on your positioning as a corporate and if you are are in an energy intensive or um, fossil fuel sector, your ability to articulate your transition narrative and to act in accordance with whatever um, commitments you've made in relation to that. And at the moment, I would say that that the the sectors that are most acutely affected are clearly very aware of this. We're we're seeing announcements from a lot of the oil majors in terms of transition strategy at the moment. But there is a fairly broad cohort for whom this is still not as obvious, I suspect, as it, it is becoming to some of the the financial market participants. And and that is going to take a little while to flow through. So what we see at the moment is corporates embracing um, ESG and embracing what's happening in terms of climate at a governance level and starting to think about strategy. And this too is actually where I think a number of the banks have been given the the delaying impact of of covid Um, but but they may not yet have fully internalized what's what what's coming through in terms of a pipeline which is probably a very bad word to use in this context Um, (laughs) what we are seeing though is much more focus on um financial instruments that that are linked to green and that demonstrate your green credentials. So the green bond market and sustainability-linked bonds are becoming much more popular. Um, Sustainability-linked loans and green loans, uh, sustainability-related derivative products, those are all starting to grow. Um, what is interesting is that as they grow, a lot of those are still very much uh, subject to voluntary requirements. We are s- going to start to see those move from voluntary into more regulated standard setting at the EU I think
0: How about at the board level for the for corporate boards do you see board members uh, more engaged in um, what are indicia of that engagement? Are you seeing committee structures uh, change? Yeah, we're definitely seeing
1: committee structures and and the focus on climate, particularly for those sectors that are most immediately impacted. And we are seeing um, non-executives engaging and uh, looking to educate themselves in relation to climate in ESG. It's taking a little longer, I think, in the pensions world, but in the corporate multinational world, it's definitely something that uh, non-executives are aware of. But it'll take time for this to be integrated into strategy at a level of sophistication that's equivalent to some of the risks that we have become more familiar with earlier. So, so what really needs to happen is, in the same way as we've integrated cyber risk and data privacy, we need to think about environment and social. Uh, and, and that is, we're definitely still at, relatively speaking, at the
0: beginning of that journey. Hopefully we can go faster than the glaciers are melting. you certainly hope so so um let's touch upon a comparative perspective because um you know it may seem that progress is slow in the eu from your perspective but uh from my perspective these changes are extraordinary Um, is there anything comparable happening in the us and what about other key markets
1: so i think the, the position feels quite different in the us it feels less driven by Uh, lawmakers and more driven actually by uh, an acknowledgement within the market and within corporates that the purpose of the uh, of the corporate has probably been too narrowly defined in the past and needs to recognize some of these broader enhanced shareholder values that, that were written into UK law I don't know about 20 years ago Uh, That didn't necessarily mean that it worked, but it was written into the law. Um, So I I think the drive is different, but you are seeing some really big announcements from some very big institutions in North America. I think it's interesting as well that in Canada with the COVID, some of the COVID recovery response, you've got the Canadian government asking for reporting under TCFD. And we're starting to track actually all around the world how COVID recovery is starting to weave green in. And you are seeing that not just in Europe and at European level, you're seeing it also at member state level. And we're also starting to see it in other countries too. In Asia, it's interesting because Asia is a very large place and shouldn't be just sort of treated as an agglomeration. We're seeing particular focus in Japan and Korea where there, I, I think there has been a very significant uptick in engagement on um, ESG, particularly the climate piece over the last six to nine months. China is sending mixed messages in terms of where it's going. It's, it's made some quite significant changes in relation to green bonds and green finance. But it also appears to be continuing with its coal-fired power construction um, program. And then India is also uh, an area of of mixed messages. It, it it's quite a complicated picture, but definitely in in uh, Japan and South Korea, we're seeing very we're seeing significant indicators of change. Not the same as Europe because. Um, the position in relation to fossil fuels is different, and the position for Japan in particular in relation to coal is quite different and quite difficult. But there is a, a clear shift from what I can see.
0: I want to touch upon one thing because you advise so many companies in so many markets. Are you finding that companies that have a strong ESG function are navigating COVID any more effectively? and why do you think that is?
1: We have seen that companies and institutions who are strong in ESG have been particularly thoughtful in their response to COVID and probably also have an additional resilience in their existing relationships that has supported them through um, this extraordinary time. And that may be because ESG has often been seen as an area which is a proxy for effective management and, and good governance. And so you're seeing thoughtful companies being thoughtful in lots of different fora.
0: That certainly makes sense. Are you also seeing that those companies have sophisticated mechanisms for eliciting information from stakeholders, for example?
1: I think it's both that they've got those systems in place, but it's probably more that they have the relationships already built, and they are used to engaging in a collaborative, communicative way.
0: That's really interesting. And now I'm getting into the territory where I'm doing my own field research in this interview. So maybe I'll stop there (laughs) and and move on to the last question. Uh, I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests uh, both a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with a magic wand. Um, If you can change uh, anything with respect to uh, how corporates, asset managers or investors are approaching ESG, what would that be?
1: What would really help everybody is to have a consistent set of metrics. So that's what I'd use my magic wand
0: on. That is a powerful magic wand. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and how about the crystal ball? What do you see?
1: On ESG um, and climate in particular, but more, but actually, you know, on the S as well, what we're seeing is a real acceleration Uh, and it wasn't what i expected to see when we went into covid having lived through um, the gfc i kind of thought there was a real risk that it would damp down but actually i think what we're seeing is acceleration of this trend certainly um, in in european markets but i think more generally so so my crystal ball is that that Uh, there's
0: going to be a lot of development quite quickly, I think. I hope that your crystal ball comes true. And I hope that um, also in your crystal ball, you're seeing us getting together in person at a conference, because I always uh, enjoy seeing you, Vanessa. And thank you so much for your work. And thank you for being with us today. It was a huge pleasure. I I hope we'll uh, get together soon too. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.